From the Omaha Bugle Global News Headquarters, this is the Global News Network with Senior Correspondent Jeff Weaver and Senior Correspondent Adam Von Romer. Well, you know, uh, again, I think to your point, the very notion of saddling the current, let's just say the current economy, with another $400 million or $400 billion worth of debt seems to be a little economically tone deaf to me. Maybe I'm missing something, but, you know, after the proclamation the other day about how our chief executive had lowered inflation for the second month in a row, and yeah, he actually said that, and he created, initially he created 13.5 billion new jobs, but he revised that statement, it was only 13.5 million new jobs. So, well, that's what's impressive. Yeah. Well, I have the thought, you know, as I'm out driving around South Florida and I see all these signs for people that are looking to hire, like, okay, well, where were all these millions of jobs created? And why is gas once again up? Yeah. Why did I just pay $6 for a dozen eggs? I mean, is there a chicken shortage in the United States that I had not heard of? I think those must be very good eggs. Well, these are premium quality, obviously. They're uh, bespoke eggs. They're custom eggs. <laughs> made, made by the Tiffany people. Yeah, it's Tiffany, Tiffany chicken. I'm just, I'm thinking maybe there's a little disconnect between the American public and purportedly the people that are governing, if you can even use that word, and certainly the market reality. What is in fact going on? Why would we want to enter into any type of process that would add another $400 billion to the deficit. And I readily agree that there are probably some people out there that are certainly deserving and probably need that type of hand up. But again, why now? Why are we paying for it? And it seems to me, you know, like we talked about on a number of occasions, it seems to me that the timing is a bit suspect as well. Well, it's always motivated to some degree by the next election. But, you know, Adam, the the bigger part of it is that this whole idea of loan forgiveness doesn't address the problems that have created the need for these massive amounts of loans to be borrowed in the first place. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the tuition is so out of whack, you know, I think you and I have discussed the median tuition for you know, simply going to an out-of-state university, the the cost to send a student to an out-of-state university, public university, for example, is you know, fifty-five, sixty thousand dollars, which is somewhere around the median family income in this country. Yeah. And if you're going to play, to me, if you want to do something and involve some aspect of loan forgiveness, I think you also have to fix this whole problem that has given rise to this absolutely absurd increase in intuition. Mm-hmm. Kids can't afford it. I mean, when you and I came through, we could, I mean, I went to a state university and you could work your way through. I mean, it, it wasn't impossible. I mean, there's no way you can do it now unless your, your father happens to be Elon Musk or something because it's simply 50, 60,000 bucks. You can't really do that part time. No. Well, I'm pretty sure there's a mechanism to do that, but I would be willing to bet that it's pretty much illegal 
And I think it would involve dancing on tables and <laughs> taking $100 bills in a G-string, but beyond that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just, the other thing, and you and I have talked about this before, it's about the extreme, and I, I know we're getting a little upfield here, but the extreme bloat in college administration. Why do we need you know, a chief administrator of shrubbery or whatever some of these people's jobs are? I mean, I don't see that this whole thing adds to the quality in any way, shape, or form of the education. Well, I think we did have a discussion sometime back, and we had talked about some of the major universities where there was one administrator for every teacher, every professor, assistant professor, associate professor, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm just thinking, I don't really think you need that kind of blow to run a school. I mean, a school is fundamentally pretty simple to do. You know, you need a building, book, students, teacher, liquor for the teacher, maybe. I don't know, but... <laughs> Beyond that, it, a school is basically a very simple thing to operate in its fundamental form. But it has gotten to be something far afield from that with the vast layers of non-teaching personnel that have been hired. And it's, that I'm sure has driven it. You know, the fact that they've gotten so much into, shall we say, the sort of Disneyland type of facility building that, you know, they feel they need to have to attract students. And of course, that's in the backdrop of a declining admission pool, which, you know, I don't think that's going to affect Harvard or Yale. They're always going to be able to fill their class. But, the, you know, there are a number of schools where they're having a tougher time or getting a smaller applicant pool just because there are fewer students. We don't have the big, what is it, cohort they call it, of, mm -hmm. you know, from the baby boomer time or the generation after that. And it seems like it's continuing to shrink. Well, yeah, so, that, that is a reality that demographers have known about for what? 40 years. I mean, that became evident when, you know, the greatest generation produced the baby boomers. And then, you know, the baby boomers went on to, you know, go, well, I don't think I need four and a half kids. I feel pretty good with, yeah, ooh, one or three. Yeah, two or three, maybe, maybe even one. And we've seen the demography change. That was no secret. Yeah. And the other thing that you brought up, are our kids getting a bigger, better education for the hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt that they're or the parents are presumptively incurring to you know put this whole thing together for the kitty you know well, that, that's the whole thing the whole system's out of whack and a lot of people think that it's due to the fact that the, the availability of the student loans just created this massive slush pile which enabled the schools to continually jack up the tuition you know in anticipation of these student loans being given mm -hmm. so one radical solution has been well don't do student loans and see what happens with the tuition rates you know a lot of mm -hmm. schools would have no choice but to radically radically restructure because they're in large part floating on student loans a lot of the for-profit colleges you know the ones where they purport to teach you some type of trade they're very dependent on student loans yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, so I, I don't know that many of them would even survive if, if there wasn't these student loans available. But that, I think, has been a very inflationary aspect. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, there were a couple of very large you know, players that went out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There were. And then, of course, there have been others where the, the schools went out while the students, well, probably ones you're alluding to, where the students were still in programs and they're sort of stuck. 
you know, they're halfway through a program and the school shuts its doors. And I mean, you know, that more target thing may be something where if it's not transferable for some reason, maybe that's something that you consider some type of relief for. But, you know, Adam, that saying the road to hell is paid with good intentions. It's like, you know, yeah, it, it makes us feel good or makes some people feel good to forgive all these loans, but it also impacts other people. So you feel good about doing some for some people, which may politically help you, but it loads up the obligations from a tax standpoint that all the other people have to to deal with and that's that's not a feel-good thing well let's chat about that for a minute because correct me if i'm mistaken here but aren't a lot of those student loans sold into the secondary market as investment vehicles yeah and a lot of them are private they're not all, you know, government originating, I don't think. I think a lot of them are private. And, of course, there's few restrictions on interest rates and everything, the privately funded ones. So, Well, what happens, yeah, what happens to the privately funded loans if all this forgiveness goes on? Or was it their intent to only help out the ones that were government guaranteed? Well, I have a feeling that if you were to try and do that, you would have to somehow step up and... If you were trying to run that sort of program, that you would somehow have to step in the shoes of the private lenders to the extent they were going to get creamed due to the loans being forgiven. Dare, dare I use that type of adjective? I don't know if that's an adjective, but anyways, you know, I, let's face it, you have all these lenders, they've got money out. It's not certainly beyond the purview of our government, given their past efforts to bail out banks to do it one more time. I mean, why not? Yeah, no. Wow. A trillion here and a trillion there, and soon you're talking about some real money. <laughs> well, that's, that's the whole thing. and It's like, it, it kind of gets back to this whole thing, and I understand the current generation, and I don't know what cohort we're talking about, if it's Gen X or Millennials or whatever, but they're being left in a situation where the baby boomer generation essentially has just laden the country with debt and every debt has been accompanied by feel good good intentions but you can't run a country based on that you certainly can't keep your financial health in order based on spending some money every time you want to do something because you feel bad about somebody's situation and to your point again you know baby boomer or not the bottom line is at some point in time that bill is going to come due and well, I, you know, yeah. presumptively, and you, you and I have talked about this as well, you and I are getting to that age where we're getting about ready to ride off into the sunset and you know, leave governance and all that stuff to, I can't keep them straight, I guess it's the Gen Xers or Millennials, I can't ever... Well, let's just say the, let's just say the up-and-coming generation. Yes, and we're also collectively, and I shudder to even use this as far as you and I are concerned, but you know, collectively, we're going to be leaving them with would you say thirty-seven trillion dollar debt? I think we were at thirty-one trillion. I would have to check my calculator, but I think the deal that Brady Speaker struck was that essentially certain discretionary stuff got curbed to some degree. But none of the three drivers of our government uh, explosion of debt—you know, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security—were dealt with at all. So that continues to grind on. So I think. As I recall, in the next two years, the debt will go up by four trillion more, and there's, we got some discretionary caps and so forth. But it doesn't address the big stuff, unfortunately. Nobody wants to talk about that. It's suicide for their careers. Oh, absolutely. But, look what's that, going on. And that's the big—that's the big conversation. It's dynamite. You know, you're done. You do anything here, and you know, you can kiss your political career goodbye. But you know what? I, it occurs to me that you know, at some point in time. 
somebody, maybe a benevolent dictator, just that's where I'm thinking, just putting it out there. Somebody's going to have to make the hard decision. Somebody's going to have to step up and say, hey, listen, we can't continue like this. This needs to change. And you know what? I, I was thinking about this even this morning. It reminds me of my historically favorite character, Winston Churchill. We're going to have nothing to really show except for blood, sweat, toils, and tears. Yeah, and everybody's going to get a, you know, everybody's going to get a dose of it. And, you know, I had fantasies of growing up in a society where our government didn't do what was good for themselves. They did what they believed to have been good for the entire country. And I think that ethos has gone completely out the window. Well, you know, and, and we had had a show on term limits, and, you know, we were throwing pros and cons of them. But, right. you know, you wonder if you had term limits, if it would make people act in a way more like, okay, I'm only going to be here a few years, so maybe I actually act more on for the benefit of the common good. That may be a fairy tale to hope, but it seems to me that political career sustainability is what's going on here because you do. we talked about how you can fix these programs. I mean, you just make adjustments mm-hmm. as the age eligibility means test, whatever, and you know, it doesn't have to happen overnight, but you can fix them. And then, of mm-hmm. course, you've got the graft and corruption aspect, which is unfortunately a pretty big component of many of these programs as well, whether we like it or not. Oh. So it can be done. You know what surprises me, Adam, is let's see, on the Republican side of the presidential field, I don't know whether we have eight or nine or ten people and kind of lost track of how many are in there. But if I was going to say, I'm going to run, you know, no chance of winning, but why not start throwing out all these ideas like, okay, if I get there, guess what? Everybody, we're going to have to come up with a way to cut through either being more efficient or whatever. We're going to have to cut everything by 10% across the board spending-wise. That means all the... Well, security, that, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, that was, that was proposed quite a few years ago, as I recall. Well, I remember Senator Daniel Moynihan, you know, from New York, he got into the whole thing about trying to make it, trying to avoid where we are now with right. all these obligations outstripping our ability to fund them. And that, I think we're talking about the 1980s, you know, he was foreseeing this type of issue arise, and it's probably far worse than he ever believed, because in the 1980s, the national debt was couple trillion dollars and i doubt he would have believed it would have gotten to you know 30 trillion mm-hmm. in the last 35 40 years i guess wow that's a pretty big number to talk about well and you know i guess the other thing that that was brought to my mind is i have, may have said something about this earlier it's kind of like yeah we'll we'll just go ahead and forgive that and okay we're gonna forgive it but where are we getting the dough to forgive it where's that money coming from you know, what cuts are going to be enacted or, or how are we going to do this in a, you know, a fair and equitable manner? You know, how do we spread around the pain? You know, I just don't see, like I said, the political will to do it. No. Yeah, you know, because if you do something like that, then, you know, you can rest assured that the next time your, your, <laughs> your, your pony baloney job is up for re-election, you probably won't be sitting there anymore. Probably decide to retire before going for election again. But somebody's got to do it. I mean, that, but then that again, that's why I was sort of surprised that one or more of these fringe candidates haven't said, you know, we got real problems here. Let's like act like adults and actually solve them as opposed to just dumping it on the next generation or the generation behind that. Because that's all we're doing now. We're just, you know, we're delaying. I mean, the fact that we're in a peacetime economy and we're running these kinds of deficits, you know, three and three and a half. And the fact that nobody cares anymore, I think people have just gotten numb to it and they don't even think about it anymore. Well, it's really a lie. 
I think part of that might hearken to the, God, I, I, even, I, I even hate saying the word, the modern monetary theory. Mm-hmm. You know, like, okay, well, we, we control the currency, so, you know, what? So what? We kick the can down the road. We'll just print ourselves out of debt. That uh, doesn't work so well. And, you know, you and I talked about this recently. I mean, we've seen the repercussions of that how many times? How many times do we have to see these feeble, futile, completely failed attempts at, yeah, printing ourselves out of debt to get it that it never works? And in fact, it's actually crippling to the economy. And yeah, the pain that it engenders is deep, systemic, and long-lasting. And it does not affect everyone equally. Let's face it. You know, I've got an acquaintance who makes fighting chairs for yachts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, not something that you know you're you're going to jump in the car and you and Shelley are going to run down to you know Home Depot this week and go, oh, gee, look at that. They're having a Fourth of July sale on fighting chairs. So let's drop a hundred thousand dollars on a new chair for the boat, you know, for the you know SS Weaver. So yeah. his people aren't going to be impacted by that because I have a sneaking suspicion that good economy, bad economy, sideways economy. Once you have a couple hundred million dollars, maybe it doesn't have as big a effect on you as it would on somebody who's basically working one and a half jobs, paying that outrageous or attempting to pay the outrageous bloated college tuition or helping their kid pay the bloated college tuition. And I know you and I have flailed this one before, but, you know, we think you and I, maybe we're mistaken in our belief that, you know, everybody wants pretty much the same thing. They want equal opportunities, a better life for their children, the ability to put food on the table. Well, yeah, just those minor life conveniences, shall we say. And that's where the squeeze really happens. That's where the squeeze takes place. Well, you know, Adam, over, you kind of had the same thing happen when the Fed was holding the rates really low for, what, the past decade, decade mm-hmm. and a half. I mean, they jacked it up a couple of times, but then it went back down. And they were unnaturally low. And, of course, you could argue that, well, maybe that encouraged saving. and Well, not saving because you weren't really being given an incentive to save because the, <laughs> the, the amount the banks were paying were like zero. Incurred uh, savings where? <laughs> yeah, no, that was misspeaking. But the I guess the idea was that, well, lower interest rates, people might buy more plants, equipment, and so forth. But I don't think much of that really helped. I think it just ended up inflating the cost of everything because you had the same number of, I mean, to use real estate as an example, if you were a seller, rates in the market were cheaper for borrowing money. Well, that's great, but it doesn't, the seller might benefit, but you're probably just going to raise the cost of your building higher because you know that there's more dollars available to buy that building. Because the rate we Absolutely 100% on point. We saw that the Fed rates were lower, and, and you and I have been on the planet long enough to recognize that a 2 or 3% interest rate is not normal. In fact, I even did a speaking engagement where I spoke to that and talked about the traditional and customary band of interest rates being somewhere between a low of 6 and a high of 8%. And that's normative. That's the, you know, the golden mean, if you will. That's where they hang out. They don't hang out at, you know, they don't hang out at 2. They don't hang out at 10. You know, they hover right in that band. And, you know, people, again, this harkens back to what I said earlier about, you know, the collective forgetfulness. People have this tendency to forget that we have, in fact, been here before. The progenitor of the crisis has changed and always does. 
But the net effect that we have inflationary you know, conditions, that what they thought was going to stimulate the economy didn't stimulate the economy. In fact, what it did was it didn't cause anybody to save any more money because as we well know, as soon as everybody has you know, those extra happy dollars in their pocket, what's the first thing they go out and do? Spend them. They go out, they go out and buy a new Jeep, you know, they, they put new rims on their truck, you know, they take vacations, etc. And believe me, I am not in any way, shape, or form suggesting that people should not take vacations or people should not spend their money in any manner that they see fit. But the notion that those happy dollars were going to go into the banking system, it's just silly. And it's been proven over and over again. And the low interest rates caused people to take the dough and go. And to your point, I mean, you and I have witnessed it on several occasions during these business cycles where, yeah, interest rates were low. Well, guess what? The cap rate went down. The interest rate was down, but the price turned around and did exactly what it does every time. The price of real estate went right up, reflecting a squeeze on the yield. But because the cost of capital was so low, you could still make it work. Right. Well, and here's the thing, which is where it really hits a lot of people, particularly those who are not carrying a couple of million bucks around in their pocket and don't have to worry about everyday concerns. Is So all this extra money is floating around the economy. Prices of houses, rents, whatever, go up. I mean, we've seen that happen the last few years, that housing has become far more unaffordable in most parts of the country than it used to be. Oh, absolutely. And, and wages don't keep up with it. Typically, some people do. Some people are fortunate enough to be in a job where they get bonus or whatever, make a lot of money and it doesn't matter so much. But most people don't get big bonuses every year or may not even get any kind of increase. Yet they're seeing the price of a house you know, go up by 20% in one year. And again, they may be easing off now, but the damage has been done. You know, everything's at a higher plateau. And we know sellers of homes, as an example, are very reluctant to drop prices quickly, even when the market's telling them to drop it. Mm -hmm. And so all I'm getting to is the net impact of these inflationary policies is they typically hurt a lot of people whose lifestyle becomes compromised because they cannot afford what they used to be able to afford. All these extra dollars do not mean that anything else gets produced in addition to what was already being produced just makes mm -hmm. it more costly and more unaffordable and a lot of people just have a harder time make paying their bills as a result so anytime you hear about them wanting to juice up the money supply significantly you should be thinking well this is a great way to really take another whack at the working class because those are the people you're hurting people living on limited incomes and so forth you're making their lives harder and that's what the, that's a real tragedy of this whole thing you know you're almost beginning to sound like you're on the other side of the aisle there for a minute <laughs> hurting, you know, hurting, you know, hurting the proletariat oh my god no i think that unfortunately is the outcome of an inflationary economy lesser well off particularly get hurt their income is so limited mr weaver i could not agree with you more and i think that's part of the tone deafness that exists in Washington today. The people that they represent, the people that they are supposed to be looking out for are getting squeezed. And they're not getting squeezed gently. They're getting squeezed rather energetically. And these failed policies, the notion of giving things away for free, nothing is free. Somewhere, somehow, somebody's going to have to pay for it. And it was funny, I was talking to a friend of mine who was in the financial services industry the other day, and he said, and I love this, I asked him if I could borrow it. He said, when we're in you know, times like this, inflation takes the elevator, wages 
take the stairs. That's a great summation. Is that not one of the best you've heard? I said, I got a bar of that. Yeah, yeah. No, Ocean we'll take the elevator. Do, do we have to pay him for this? I mean, we may have to record Oh, no, no. He said, he said that I, I oh, could feel oh. free to use that. And I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll even tell you it was my, my friend Charles Woldenberg, financial yeah. planner and, you know, advisor to baby boomers looking to retire. There's a little plug for, for Charles. But he said that. And I thought, you know what? I didn't learn that in economics class, but you know, you could have probably ended an entire semester with just that one single statement. Yeah. Yeah. Here you go. A absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I think we've probably covered this topic about as well as we can in the oh, absolutely. We've, we've whipped this weaver. Oh, dear God, I didn't even pay attention to the red card being waved at me fanatically. <laughs> Well, I guess I'm in trouble again. Well, Mr. Weaver, with that, I think it's time for us to bid our audience a fond adieu. Until we meet again, this has been Adam Von Romer and Jeff Weaver, Senior Correspondent for the Omaha Bugles Global News Network. Thank you again for joining us, and we will see you in our next session.